Hello friends, welcome to Thinking on Scripture. My name is Stephen Cook. Uh, we are picking up in our continued uh, series of lessons on the subject of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. We are currently in our section in which we are looking at the role of God the Son in our salvation, the role of God the Son in soteriology. We've already looked at uh, the role of God the Father. We've moved into the role of God the Son. We looked at the deity of Christ. We looked at the doctrine of the hypostatic union. In our last couple lessons, we talked, or in our last lesson, we talked about the suffering servant as well as Jesus' humility. And so now we are going to move into the uh, subject of Jesus' sinless life. Jesus' sinless life. Uh, now, I am teaching these. Uh, these are being recorded privately in my own uh, room, in my little home study here. But uh, these are also being recorded on my Saturday Night Bible Study, which is being live-streamed to Facebook and being recorded uh, for audio as well. I'm doing a recording today on the audio for my podcast as well. So uh, there is a bit of overlap on these sessions, and there may be something that I'll cover in one session that I will not cover in another. And so uh, there's a little bit of overlap there, but that's fine if you're studying, if you're following along with me in these sessions, then uh, then you're getting a little repetition, which can be good for the soul. So let's talk about Jesus' sinless life. Now, the record of, of Scripture is very, very straightforward. Now, in past lessons, I've talked about the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, the technical term for that is called parthenogenesis, uh, virgin conceived, virgin born. Uh, but because Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and you can read about this in Luke chapter 1, uh, Jesus did not have a biological father. Joseph was not his father. And so because Jesus did not have a biological father, but was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus was um, conceived and born without Adam's original sin and without a sin nature. And so when he came into the world, he came into the world as, well, as a unique person, uh, the monogenes theos, the only begotten God, the unique person in the universe, because he is simultaneously undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect or true humanity. So he's fully God, fully man, perfect God, perfect man. And um, and so when Jesus goes throughout his life, the issue then becomes, can he uh, maintain his sinlessness? Can he uh, not commit any acts of sin? And so the record of Scripture is very, very clear. In fact, we have four references here. One is in First Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, which says that Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews four fifteen tells us um, that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. First Peter two twenty two tells us that he committed no sin, and First John three five tells us says that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, this is all very important. It's very important to understand this, uh, to understand that Jesus did not have Adam's original sin imputed to him. He did not have a sin nature that is a proclivity to sin. We're born with that, by the way. All humanity is born with that. Jesus was born. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born as Adam was created. Perfect. Minus a sin nature. Now, Adam acquired his sin nature after his rebellion when he set his will against the will of God. 
and he chose to follow Satan um, and to eat uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he experienced separation from God, spiritual death in time. Later he experienced physical death as a consequence as well. Uh, but nonetheless, Adam came to uh, acquire a sin nature. There was a, a, a compositional change to his very nature. And so all of his children, when you get over into Genesis uh, chapters 4 and 5, you realize that Adam's children are born with sin natures. And so they have a proclivity to sin. They are born in the image of Adam. And so we're all born that way. We all come into the world this way with these sin natures. And this is why Romans 5.12 says, For by one man, that's Adam's sin, came into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because we all sinned when Adam sinned, because we were all related to Adam, both seminally and federally. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But this idea of being in Adam or being in Christ, those very important uh, theological truths with, with regard to positional identification. But it's important to understand that when we're talking about Christ, we're talking about somebody who committed no sin, who committed no sin. Uh, now, why was this? Why was the sinless humanity of Jesus necessary? Because it was necessary for him to go to the cross. You see, the biblical teaching is that all mankind is sinful and separated from God. Uh, <laughs> the Bible does not give a flattering view of mankind. We've already been through some of this. I've already chased down a number of scripture references, and we'll hit a few more along the way. But the reality is, is that uh, the Bible does not seek to flatter mankind. It does not. Uh, Romans 3.10 says uh, that there is none righteous not even one. And then uh, Paul goes on, he gives a very, very scathing uh, comment, but you get down to verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this is something that we see uh, very, very clear. So the biblical teaching is that all mankind is sinful and separated from God. We are said to be sinners in Adam, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Uh, verse 22, for as in Adam all die. So we are sinners in Adam. That is because uh, we are born into the family of Adam. Uh, and therefore we are born with his sin imputed to us. That original sin is imputed to all of his offspring. Plus we have a sin nature uh, that we also have. Paul talks about this sin nature. Uh, you see this conflict. In fact, in Romans 7, 14 through 25, the translators of the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 update, have put a title above this called The Conflict of Two Natures. Because the unbeliever only has one nature, and that's a fallen nature. That is a sinful nature. Now, the sinful nature can go in one of two directions. <clears throat> the sinful nature can go in the direction of legalism, or it can go in the direction of licentiousness. It can go in the direction of... Uh, being religious or lawless. It can go in either of those directions. Uh, and when you think about all the unbelievers that Jesus interacted with during his time on the earth in hypostatic union when he was during his time of ministry, um, he dealt with people that were commonly called sinners, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, uh, people that were openly dishonest, immoral, we might call lawless, 
<clears throat> but then there was another group of people that Jesus dealt with that were lost. And these were the religious uh, people. In fact, in John 8, 44, Jesus described the Pharisees as, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Um, and so they were children of devil. They were not, they were not saved. They were very religious, very religious. They, they read and memorized their Bible. Uh, they prayed, they fasted, they tithed. Uh, of course, they had traditions in addition to the Bible uh, that became sort of encrusted around the Bible. Uh, and they elevated the traditions of man and in many ways broke the scriptures. But nonetheless, that when Jesus was dealing with two kinds of unbelievers, two kinds of lost people, he was dealing with some who were lawless. Now, when he comes to them and he says, yeah, you're sinners, they're like, yeah, yeah, go figure. That's right. It's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed working in jail and prison ministry for upwards of 17 years, because when I walk in and talk with the guys and I talk about these things, they're like, yeah, you're right. Of course, the environment's, you know, kind of telling, isn't it, uh, with regard to their failings, but they're a little more open and honest. It's the religious person who doesn't like to be called a sinner, uh, who doesn't like to be called an enemy of God, uh, because they think that they're saved by their works. And pride, pride, pride is vicious. Pride is vicious. It's nasty business. But when one thinks about a sin nature, the sin nature can go in one of two directions. It can go in the direction of lawlessness, which was the proclivity of my sin nature when I was living in Vegas and my years of drug abuse and, and um, criminal activity, which involved uh, selling drugs. Uh, that was that was my tendency, but uh, that was where my sin nature tends to go. But then there are people on the other end who tend to go in the moral direction. And I remember one time talking with a woman who was very very religious, and uh, I was I was playing. She walked by my desk, and uh, I said, "Good morning, you sinner." And I just sort of threw it out there, just sort of playfully. And she turned and she looked at me and she had big eyes, I mean, size of quarters. And I mean, we were just kind of staring at each other and she looked at me and she goes, I, I, I'm, I'm not a sinner. <laughs> it caught me off guard. I didn't, I didn't expect it. Um, but she was horrified at the thought of being called a sinner. And, and this is a woman who had been attending a church for several years. And, uh, and had even talked to me about her pastor and so on. And I said, I said, you're struggling with this concept of being a sinner, I can tell. And, and she looked at me and again, just with this shock look like, I'm not a sinner. And I said, look, you do attend such and such a church, right? And she said, yeah. And I, so I did a quick search, pulled them up, opened their doctrinal statement, did it real quick. And I said, look, their doctrinal statement teaches that all mankind is fallen. I was really quite surprised because the doctrinal statement on the church website was really pretty good. Um, but it said they talked about how we were sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. And I said, you, you do realize that we are all fallen, sinful creatures, sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. She was blinking like I'd never heard this before. And I thought, you've been attending church for all these years, but you, you just... Either it hasn't been communicated very well, or you've just shut yourself off to it. But again, she was shocked. And so then I had to back way off, and I had to just say, look, you do realize that the Bible teaches that we are sinners. And so even though I use that term playfully, I can tell you're a little put off by the comment. Um, and, uh, and I said, so can I take a moment and explain this to you? 
and to help you understand why the cross of Christ is so necessary. So I use it as an opportunity to uh, share the gospel, and I did it in about five minutes. Uh, But um, some people have a real hard time with this. So when we talk about the sin nature, that's something that we're all born with. But again, when you study through the scriptures, when you study through the gospels in particular, it was the religious sinners. It was the moral degenerates uh, who were the greatest opposition to Jesus because they had a hard time seeing themselves in need of a Savior. Uh, And so, you know, they thought that they were, you know, God's gift to the world. And you think of in in Luke 18 where you have the publican and the sinner both come into into the temple and of course, the publican, uh, you know, the, the Pharisee comes in and he, he says, you know, I, aren't I wonderful? I pray, I fast, I tithe. I'm not like that, you know, like that sinner over there. And, uh, and so this was their general attitude. They generally thought very, very high of themselves. But the, the biblical teaching is not flattering. It is not flattering. And so again, the Bible teaches that we are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature. So this is what Paul's talking about here. By the way, when they title this the conflict of two natures, it's important to understand that at the moment of salvation, every Christian receives a new nature. We are born again. Now, the old, the old nature, the sin nature, is not eradicated. Its power to control our lives has been cut off. And in that sense, we are dead to sin. Uh, in other words, its power has been uh, snipped such that we can, in fact, follow the new nature. We can, in fact, walk in the Spirit and grow in the Spirit and, and be filled with the Spirit and so on. But this conflict, this war within, is true for every believer. And this is Paul's personal experience. He's talking about himself as a Christian, as somebody who's saved. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Now, he, he bounces back and forth here between I, the new man, new nature, and I, the old man, old nature. And so you kind of have to follow his thought as he's bouncing back and forth here because he's using the term I in two different ways. He says, for I am doing, uh, for what I am doing, I do not understand. Uh, for I am not practicing what I, the new, would like to do, but I, the old, am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I, the new, agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now notice he's talking about sin which dwells in me. And sin here uh, communicates the idea of a sin nature, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And you feel Paul's tension here as he's talking about this conflict between these two natures. He says, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. See, that's his new nature. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. That's that's his new nature. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And so you feel this tension back and forth. Um, in, uh, in 
uh, Romans 13, verse 12 through 14, Paul writes, he says, The night is almost gone and the day is almost near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Um, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, walk in your new nature, walk in the Spirit, advance to maturity, and make no provision for the flesh, that's the sin nature, in regard to its lusts. In other words, stop exposing yourself to the things that excite the flesh. But again, we must understand that as Christians, as, as human beings, we are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities, your iniquities, this is the production of your, of your, sin, uh, of your sin nature. Uh, once you yield to temptation, then that becomes sin. Temptation is not sin, it's merely the enticement or opportunity or pressure to sin. It becomes sin when the volition says yes to the temptation and produces it. But he says here, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, James 1, 14 and 15. But each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So because of our fallen sinful state, we are completely helpless to solve our sin problem and save ourselves. Uh, And these are verses that I've hit before, but again, just very, very clear. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now this is shocking, because it means that God sent Christ to die for us while we were in a very, very low state. Because we think of people on a tiered system, and we have the lowest of the low. We might call them criminals, or even the worst of criminals, the Jeffrey Dahmers, you know, those sorts of people. Um, But God, but the scripture says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now we can move up from there on a human level. We can understand giving ourselves as a sacrifice to lay down our lives for for somebody else. We understand that. We understand that in the human realm. We we do. We understand that in a in a sense of a soldier laying down his life for a for a for a fellow compatriot or for a citizen. We think of a, a good citizen being willing to put himself or herself in harm's way to protect another citizen, an innocent victim, a child. A mother understands this with regard to laying down her life for her child whom she loves greatly. We understand these concepts of laying down our life. Now, Paul moves from the low category, the helpless, the ungodly, to the righteous man, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, he says in verse 7, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So he's moving up here. The righteous man is the man who simply holds strictly to a legal standard. The word righteous here, dikaios in the Greek, communicates the idea of somebody who strictly holds to a legal standard. I've used the illustration before, who drives the speed limit, pays his taxes on time, very, very law-abiding person. But a person can be can adhere strictly to a legal standard and not be moral. They cannot give of their resources to help the the homeless, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the needy, to help support pastors for ministry or churches or, you know, to give to people who need, you know, they cannot, they cannot be that selfless giving person. They can be righteous. They can strictly adhere to a standard of law, but not be good. The good person is a righteous person, 
It is somebody who holds to a standard, who holds to the standard of the law, but is beyond that. So it's the person who uh, does the speed limit while delivering meals on wheels or taking food to, uh, to a hungry person, or, or clothing to a shelter, or blankets to the homeless on a cold night. You know, wanders the streets and hands out bl- blankets and, and warm meals when the temperature is going to get below freezing. That's the good person, you see. Now, we understand this. One will hardly die for a righteous person. We get that. Though for the good person, someone would dare even to die. We think, yeah, yeah, that's true, Paul. I've, I'm following you here. I'm following here. But then he shocks you. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, he drops the bottom out. We're at the very bottom category here. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you see. And, and so this really helps us to understand uh, our fallenness and the greatness and the provision of God and our helplessness and our inability to save ourselves. So because of our fallen sinful state, we are completely helpless to solve the sin problem and to save ourselves. And of course, good works have no saving merit before God. I'll tell you, if there is something that I have beat the drum on over and over and over throughout this series of lessons, it's that good works don't save. It's the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one, uh, one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now in the world of mankind, in the world of economics, we understand, and it's a valid system, please understand it's a valid system, that if you work, you should be paid. Okay? Um... In fact, this was true even under the Mosaic Law, where God said, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And you think, well, well what's that? Because the man who had the oxen uh, might see the oxen uh, working the, thresh, the threshing sledge, and the ox might reach its head down and proceed to eat some of the grain, and the, the owner might be tempted to, to muzzle the ox while the ox is working the threshing sledge. And God says, don't you dare put a muzzle on that ox. Don't you dare do that. Um, um, So he says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. uh, For the laborer, Paul says another time, is worthy of his wages. In other words, God's sense of compensation for work done is so strong that it extends even to the animal kingdom. And that just shows how strong God's sense of, again, compensation for work done is just, it's just amazing to think about. Now, in the human world, that's fine. We operate by that system. You work, you get paid. That's valid. But don't take that system and apply it to God when it comes to salvation. That is a faulty, faulty, faulty way of thinking. And that's Paul's whole point right here in Romans 4. He says, look, in the human realm, that's fine. To the one who works... His wage, that is his paycheck, is not credited as favor. It's not a gift. When my employer writes me a check or puts deposits money in my account after I've done my work, they're not being kind. They're paying me for the work that I did. Now, the problem with humanity is is they take that paradigm, that way of thinking, and bring it to God. And they say, all right, God, here's my work. Save me. Pay me. As As though entrance into heaven is payment for my good works. No, 
No, no, no, no. That is not how it works. That is not, it's by grace. You see, and this is Paul's point here in Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work at all, period. To the one who does not work, but does one thing and one thing only. And what is that? But believes in him who justifies who? Not the good, not the moral, not the kind. Who justifies or declares right who? The ungodly. Uh, That one who is ungodly, who believes in him, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, and so salvation, again, is by grace alone. We don't earn it or deserve it. It is through faith alone, because faith doesn't save, Christ saves, but faith is the instrument by which we receive that. In Christ alone, Christ saves. It's not Christ plus us. It's not Christ plus anything. It is Christ and Christ alone. So to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. For by grace, 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 you have been saved. Wonderful grace, amazing grace, caught us unmerited favor, undeserved Kindness born out of the bounty and goodness of the giver and is in no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object at all. By grace, you have been saved. It's by grace. Through faith, and what? And that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is what? The gift of God. The gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. I'll tell you, the scripture is just, it screams this. And yet people want to bring, they want to bring their works. It's the pride of men. That's what it is. Now, good works should follow salvation. The scripture is clear on this. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and good works should follow salvation, but they're never, never, never the condition of it. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. And it's always one way. It's God saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Moving on. So being completely sinless, Jesus was qualified to go to the cross, according to 1 Peter 1.19, as a lamb unblemished and spotless. You see, a sinner can't die for a sinner. I mean, we can, but that, does, that has no saving value. None. Not a zero, zilch. None. Kaput. Nothing. A sinner can die for a sinner, but that has no saving value before God. He went to the cross as a lamb unblemished and spotless um, and, and died a substitutionary death in our place. So Jesus was qualified to go to the cross as a lamb unblemished and spotless and die a substitutionary death in our place. Again, that wonderful passage, I've quoted this many times, 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust 
so that he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. We can't bring ourselves to God. Impossible. Can't do it. Can't do it. We can't bring ourselves to God. Can't do it. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But he died for us, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Charles Lee Feinberg states, quote, Though tempted in all points as we are, he was nevertheless without sin. Indeed, we are told he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. In short, the combined testimony of Scripture reveals that in him there is no sin, end quote. I have a quote here from R.B. Theme Jr. from his Bible Doctrine Dictionary, which just got published uh, recently. He says, as true humanity living on earth, Christ was free from all three categories of human sinfulness, the sin nature, Adam's original sin, and personal sins. He says, the first two categories, that is, Adam's original sin and the sin nature, the first two categories were eliminated from our life's life through the virgin birth. But personal sin remained an issue throughout the Incarnation. Scripture confirms that our Lord can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The temptation to personal sin did not come from within because the humanity of Christ had no inherent sin nature. We understand that. Theme goes on, he says he did not, however, receive temptation from he he did, however, receive temptation from outside his person, even being tempted by Satan himself. By constantly relying on the provisions of the spiritual life, the same provisions available to us, Jesus Christ was able to resist every temptation and remain perfect, end quote. He's absolutely correct. Now going on in the notes here, sinners need salvation. That's, that's the truth. We need salvation. What's the problem? We can't save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, nor can they save another. All are trapped in sin and utterly helpless to change their condition. But God the Son did what we cannot do for ourselves. He did what we cannot do for ourselves. He obeyed the Father and stepped into time and space, taking true and sinless humanity to himself and living a perfect life before the Father. Then at a point in time, he surrendered himself to the cross and died a penal, substitutionary death on behalf of all humanity, bearing the wrath of God in their place. Then he was placed in a grave and rose again to life on the third day, never to die again. Do you believe that? I do. The record of Scripture is true. It is an accurate account. It is a written deposition uh, by uh, men uh, who saw the resurrected Lord, who, who walked with him, who knew his life, who saw his miracles, that he healed the sick and raised the dead and caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And, and he did all these miracles and he fed the multitudes and he walked on the water and, and he did all these miracles. And, and then he went to the cross and willingly laid down his life. And he didn't have to. He was sinless. He was absolutely sinless. And he was God. He could have stopped it. He could have just, just thought, had a thought or snapped his fingers or anything. Could have stopped it in a second. But he didn't. And he willingly went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never, never earn. He died for us. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what makes him and his work so magnificent. 
No glory here, none for us, none for me. The glory is all his. I get the benefit. I get forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of righteousness, a spiritual gift, and God has blessed me. Oh, how he has blessed me, and I'm so thankful. I well up at times with great emotion at how wonderful my God is to me. But that's grace. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's his goodness. It's his work, not mine. And we need to understand that as I'm trying as best as I can with all that I know to pull these things out, to make them clear to you. And I struggle sometimes, and you probably feel my struggle at times, but, but I, 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 I want you to understand what the scripture communicates on these things. So then he was placed in a grave and rose again to life on the third day, never to die again. And the benefits of the cross, see, see, the death of Christ was sufficient for all, but it is effective only to those who believe. The benefits of the cross are applied to those who come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, believing he died for them, was buried and raised again on the third day. And when they place their faith in him as Savior, they have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and this is given freely by grace. Quoting again from R.B. Theme from his Bible Doctrine Dictionary, he says, Every human being needs to be saved because everyone enters this world in a state of spiritual death, total depravity, and total separation from God. Because man is born hopelessly lost from God and helpless to do anything about it, God in his grace designed a perfect plan to reconcile man to himself. God the Son took the burden of responsibility. He became true humanity and remained sinless so that he could be judged for the sins of the world. And while Jesus Christ hung on the cross, God the Father poured the full wrath of his justice upon the Son he loves so perfectly. And Christ bore our sins in his own body. And he took the punishment in our place. And God's righteous standard approved of Jesus' sacrifice as payment for all human sins. End quote. And that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Um, now, last night I did a, a live stream on the, um, well, during Bible study, we were doing it on Zoom and then I was live streaming, but I wasn't real happy with the way it turned out. I had a headache, had a migraine going, and um, I was having a hard time pulling my thoughts together and it wasn't the best of Steve, so um, I'm re-recording this uh, for that group as well, so we'll do both at the same time here. So let's move on in the next section here on Jesus' willingness to die, his willingness to die. So Jesus was not forced to go to the cross, but willingly went and bore our sin. Jesus said in John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says in John 10, 18, No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down. You see, and he says, And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment I received from my Father. You see, it was the will of, of the Father for Jesus to die a penal substitutionary death. Penal meaning he bore the penalty for our sin. Substitutionary, he died in our place. And Jesus willingly accomplished it. Jesus said in Hebrews 10.5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared 
for me. Now, this was a statement that seems to have been spoken by God the Son when he was ready to add humanity to himself. Because remember that from eternity past, God the Father uh, 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 created the plan of our salvation. He commissioned the Son. He sent the Son. The Son came into the world. But he says here in Hebrews 10.5, he says, Sacrifice and offerings, speaking of the whole sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, that's, that's the humanity of Christ because he had to be fully human to die in the place of other humans. But a body, speaks of the humanity of Christ, but a body you have prepared for me. And of course, we know that God the Holy Spirit was the uh, key person of the Godhead who was instrumental in forming this body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. You see, all three members of the Godhead are involved here. And that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to unpack and look at the different roles. And then in once in hypostatic union in Hebrews 10.9, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. Behold, I, Christ in hypostatic union, having taken on a body have come to do your will. And it was the will of the Father that he go to the cross. So it was necessary for Jesus to be fully human and free from sin to be an atoning sacrifice. Thomas Constable, another good Bible teacher that I love, and his material is very, very good. If you get a chance to get his commentaries, they're good. There's a free version online you can find as well. But Thomas Constable states that Jesus willingly offered himself. No human took his life from him. However, he offered himself in obedience to the Father's will. Leon Morris, another excellent Bible scholar, he says, The Lord's death does not take place as the result of misadventure or the might of his foes or the like. No one takes his life from him. Far from being the case, he himself lays it down and does so completely of his own volition. You see how these other Bible teachers recognize these truths. And the the biblical truths are clear. They're very, very straightforward. Quoting from William MacDonald, he says, No one could take the Lord's life from him. He is God and is thus greater than all the murderous plots of his creatures. He had power in himself to lay down his life, and he also had power to take it again. But did not men kill the Lord Jesus? Uh, MacDonald poses the question, did men not kill the Lord Jesus? They did. He says this is clearly stated in Acts 2.23 and in 1 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, but the Lord Jesus allowed them to do it. And this was an exhibition of his power to lay down his life. Furthermore, John 19.30 tells us that he gave up his spirit as an act of his own strength and will, end quote. And so again, we must understand that men were responsible for the killing of Jesus, but they didn't murder him because murder implies that it was done against his will. And he laid down his life. He allowed himself to be killed. Again, I'm trying to tighten up the language here, and it's a struggle at times to do this. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his substitutionary atonement. Atonement is a very important concept in the Bible. In fact, I took a seminary course. It was my last uh, master's level course uh, when I finished my master's degree in the spring of uh, uh, 2006. I graduated May 2006 with a Master of Divinity degree, uh, which with an emphasis in Bible exposition and theology and also in Hebrew and Greek with the biblical languages. But I took this course with Dr. Paige Patterson, who was the president of 
Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary at the time, and he's a, he's a good Bible teacher and a strong dispensationalist, I might add. He found himself in conflict with some of the other teachers there at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary who were more of a covenant theological persuasion and operated from a different hermeneutical approach to the scriptures, but be that as it is. But he taught, a, Dr. Patterson taught a course on the atonement, and the whole semester was in a course on this particular topic. And it was one of the most theologically rich courses I have ever taken, and I was very, very thankful for Dr. Patterson for that course that he taught. I learned a lot, <laughs> a lot uh, from that class. So atonement is a very important concept in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word atonement translates the Hebrew verb kafar, kafar, which according to the BDB, which is the Brown Driver Briggs, um, um, Hebrew-English lexicon. It's an older Hebrew lexicon, but a good one. It's affordable. It means to cover over, to pacify, to propitiate, or atone for sin. When we think of the animal sacrificial system, we should understand, first of all, that it was ongoing. There was never a one-and-done sacrifice. Now, Christ is a one-and-done. His sacrifice is once for all time. But the animal sacrifices were repeated week after week, month after month, year after year, and this went on and on and on. But when the sinner brought an animal, when they brought a lamb, for example, to the priest at the courtyard of the tabernacle or later the temple that was built by Solomon... When they brought the animal, they would bring it in and they would lay their hands on the head of the animal, confess their sin. The priest would lay his hands on the head of the animal and then reach around and would cut the throat of the animal. And this was shocking. And it was intended to be didactic, that is educational, uh, to be instructive, to teach that God is holy, that man is sinful, and that God was willing to accept a substitute to bear the penalty for the sinner's sin. And so it was very educational. But the word atonement means to cover. You see, it did not remove sin. Now, there is a theological term called expiation in the New Testament. And you think of in John 1.29, where John, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and even that language, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, kafar in the Old Testament, translated uh, atonement, means to cover. It didn't actually remove the sin. It just simply covered it. It was a temporary arrangement. God says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll cover this. We'll cover this until Jesus comes, until the Lamb of God comes. And when the Lamb of God comes, he will take away the sin of the world. Expiation. He will remove that sin. And so... Atonement translates the Hebrew verb kafar, which means to cover over, to pacify, to propitiate, or to atone for sin. And according to the uh, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, theologically, it means to bring together in mutual agreement with the idea in theology of reconciliation, that is, uh, between offended parties, or one person who's offended, that's God, by man who committed the offense of sin, of reconciliation, notice, through the vicarious suffering of one on behalf of another, end quote. Vicarious, another word for substitution. Vicarious, in the place of. So again, it means to bring together in mutual agreement. God comes together. He says that what you did is sin. And the person coming says, yes, Lord, that's what that is. I have sinned. 
I have broken your law. I have violated, I've committed, done something that is a violation of your character and your standard of law. And so they come together in mutual agreement with the added idea in theology of reconciliation. God says, I'm willing to allow you to be reconciled to me. I'm willing. Now, now we must deal with the sin. There must be punishment for the sin. There must be punishment for the crime. But I'm willing to, to reconcile you, the offender, to me through the vicarious substitutionary suffering of one on behalf of another. And so you have this idea, again, of being reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. You see, this is, this is ultimately where Paul takes us in the New Testament. The New Testament writers in general take us is that we are reconciled to God. We, the offending party, are reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, through the shed blood of the Lamb, through the death of Christ. It is so important to understand this. Now, theologically, well, I just did that there. Now, the animal sacrificial system, which was part of the Mosaic Law, taught that sin must be atoned for because God is righteous and holy, and he can only do one thing with sin, and that is to condemn it. And he must judge it. He is a righteous and holy God, and we serve a righteous and holy God. We do. But the idea of substitution was clearly taught as the sinner laid his hands on the animal that died in his place. Leviticus 4.15, And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord, killed in their presence. Verse 24, he shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. Leviticus 16:21. then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Leviticus 16 has to do with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, in which the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Because if you remember the temple... There was the outer courtyard, there was the temple, which had the holy place. Inside it was the menorah, the candelabra. You had the table of showbread, you had the altar of incense, and then there was the veil. And the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It separated the Kodesh from the Kodesh HaKodeshim. And that one day a year, the high priest would come and he would place uh, um, uh, incense on the altar and coals taken from, uh, from outside and he would place it upon the altar. And as he would part the veil, the smoke would wisp into the room in front of him as sort of a covering. And he would come in and then he, he would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the top of the mercy seat. And he did this once a year, and that's what Leviticus 16 is about. It's about the it's about the 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 day of atonement, that one that once a year event. But the innocent animal paid the price of death on behalf of the guilty sinner. The animal sacrificial system under the Mosaic law taught that God is holy, man is sinful, and that God was willing to judge an innocent creature as a substitute in the place of the sinner. The animal that shed its blood gave up its life in place of the one who had offended God, and it was only through the shed blood that atonement was made. It was a life for a life. A life for a life. The animal sacrificial system under the Mosaic Law was highly symbolic. It was temporary and pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Levitical priests would regularly perform their temple sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. But being a symbolic system, the animal sacrifices, according to Hebrews 10.1, could never make perfect those who draw near. 
It couldn't. It couldn't. Notice Hebrews 10.1, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Verse 10, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And so the whole sacrificial system for 1,400 plus years just kept pointing to the reminder that this is just an ongoing system. Verse 4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, notice, to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats because the animal sacrificial system was a covering. It was not an expiation. Christ came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For nearly 14 centuries, the temple priests kept offering, according to Hebrews 11, kept offering time after time the same sacrifices, notice the language again, which can never take away sins. But he, (laughs) now comes Christ, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, it was a one and done deal. He sat down at the right hand of God. And listen, the priests year after year never sat down because their work was never done. But when Christ, having offered himself, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, because all of the animals of the Old Testament were a type, Christ is the antitype. They are the picture. He is the reality. They all point to him. They're just symbols. They're pictures. Christ is the reality. He is the Lamb of God. And having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And Hebrews 10.14 tells us, For by one offering, by his work upon the cross, that one-time event of time and space when the Son of God hung When the Son of God hung between heaven and earth and took our sins upon him, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And what the Mosaic law could never accomplish through the sacrifice of symbols, Christ did once for all time. He did once for all time through his substitutionary death on the cross when he died in the place of sinners. Jesus' death on the cross was a satisfactory sacrifice to God, which completely paid the price for our sin. You see, we owed a debt to God that we could never pay, and Jesus paid that debt. He liberated us from the slave market of sin to which we are all born. So Jesus paid that debt in full when he died on the cross and bore the punishment that rightfully belongs to us. 
In Romans 3.25, Paul uses the Greek word helisterion. It's translated propitiation. Again, a word I've I've talked about before. uh, To show that Jesus shed blood completely satisfied God's righteous demands toward our sin. With the result that there's nothing more for the sinner to pay to God. Nothing more. We don't bring anything to God. No good work saved. It is the work of Christ. And God the Father is propitiated. He is satisfied with the work of Christ. And Jesus paid our sin debt in full. And the Apostle John in 1 John tells us uh, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the price. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And when I come to people, I, I, I explain to them, listen, God is righteous and holy. And we are sinners in Adam by nature, by choice. And we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. Now let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) Because that's what you have to do. You have to demonstrate the holiness of God. You have to demonstrate the sinfulness of men. Listen, the gospel is the solution to a problem. The gospel, euangelizo, the good news, it's the solution to a problem. But if we don't present the problem with regard to God's righteousness and holiness, which isn't a problem for him, it's a problem for us because we're sinful and fallen and helpless ungodly sinners, enemies of God, unable to save ourselves. But we point to people to the cross. We point them to the cross because a person needs only Christ to be saved. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus' death on the cross forever satisfied God's righteous demands towards the sins of everyone for all time. According to Colossians 2.14, God has canceled out the certificate of debt. He's canceled it out. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Regarding Christ's death, J. Dwight Pentecost, which I recommend his books, I recommend his books. If you get a chance to get his books, he's he's a good theologian, good Bible teacher. You'll be blessed. He says, you can be adjusted to God's standard because God made Christ to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin, the one in whose lips had never been found guile, took upon himself our sin in order that he might bear our sins to the cross and offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God for us on our behalf in our place. And when Jesus identified himself with sinners and went to the cross on their behalf and in their place, he was making possible the doctrine of reconciliation. He was making it possible for God to conform the world to himself, to adjust the world to his standards, so that sinners in the world might find salvation because Jesus paid it all. You can be adjusted to God Uh, You can be adjusted to God, to God's standard through Christ by his death, by his cross, by his blood, and by his identification with sinners, end quote. Now, in the New Testament, the idea of substitution is observed in the use of two Greek prepositions. I've talked about these before. The first is the use of the preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, which, according to Bedag, the Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, uh, a lot to get out there, um, is translated, it means in behalf of or for the sake of someone. 
in behalf of or for the sake of someone. So the idea of Jesus dying as a substitute in the place of sinners, again, is seen in Romans 5, 8, where Paul wrote that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died who pair? He died for us. He died as a substitute for us. The second Greek, the second preposition that denotes substitution is anti. Uh, we would say anti in English, but the Greek pronunciation is anti, uh, which is also translated for, and again, according to Bedag, um, expresses the idea that one person or thing is to be replaced by another instead of in place of. Now, the preposition anti is seen in Jesus' statement in Matthew 20, 28, where he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom anti, a ransom for many, as a substitute for many. According to Robert Leitner, he says, The biblical view of the Savior's death is that, his, is that he died to satisfy the demands of the offended righteousness of God. The Savior died in the sinner's place. This is an essential, indispensable truth in evangelicalism. It is true that Christ died for the sinner's benefit, but that does not fully describe the nature and purpose of his finished work. He gave his life in the sinner's place. He died as the sinner's substitute. The strongest expression of Christ's substitutionary death is given with the Greek preposition anti, translated for. Christ himself used this word when he said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom unto for many. Christ died in the sinner's place. He died instead of the condemned, end quote. Jesus' atonement for sins, going on in the notes here, Jesus' atonement for sins is the basis for reconciliation because God has judged our sins in the person of Christ who died on the cross in our place. The death of Christ has forever satisfied God's righteous demands for our sin. And it is on this basis that he can accept sinners into heaven. You know, some people say, well, how can a righteous and, you know, you know how can a loving God send anybody to the lake of fire? <laughs> well, uh, the better question is, how can a righteous and holy God allow a dirty, rotten sinner into heaven? The answer is, because of Christ. <laughs> Because he has borne our sin, he has paid the price, and in exchange he gives us forgiveness, afiemi, removal, the releasing of a debt. He releases us from that, and he gives us eternal life and righteousness and blesses us. Oh, how he blesses us in time and in eternity. And we're going to be forever with God in heaven. How wonderful is that? How magnificent is that? So the death of Christ has forever satisfied God's righteous demands for our sin, and it is on this basis that he can accept sinners into heaven. The blood of Christ is the only coin in the heavenly realm that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. And Christ paid our sin debt in full. That's good news. But the blood of Christ that he shed upon the cross is the only coin, the only currency that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. Because Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous demands for sin, the sinner can approach God who welcomes him or her without reservation. God has cleared the way for sinners 
to come to him for a new relationship. And this is based completely on the substitutionary work of Christ. God has done everything to reconcile humanity to himself. The debt that was owed to God was paid in full by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did upon the cross. You died for me that I might have forgiveness and eternal life and the gift of righteousness and many other blessings. And I am very, very thankful to my Savior for all that he did for me. And though I struggle at times to communicate these things to you and I wrestle to try to find the best language and the best illustrations and to search various resources that, I, uh, that I'm able to mine and to pull this material together, uh, I want to present it in a way that communicates truth in love because I want you to understand how wonderful our God is especially as we understand it in regard to our salvation. So I will close out that session, this session today, and I hope that this lesson has been helpful to you. Until we meet again, I wish you a blessed day.